I know people say that climbing is silly or pointless, but I don't see it that way. I, I see it as my motivating factor for not giving up when I was on desk doorstep. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to The Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Now today we chalk up for a chat with Favia Dubik. Now she might not have the name recognition as Alex Honnold, but she's a hell of a lot tougher and I think Alex would agree to that. If there's anyone who personifies struggle and the breakthroughs that can come from it, Favia is that person. She almost died multiple times as she battled cancer and the complications from treatment. She's faced and continues to face racism and discrimination on and off the rock. She's battled her way back from debilitating injuries and atrophy post-cancer. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. Favia is a doctor, a ridiculously strong climber, an ultimate ninja warrior, and a lowball boulderer with many V-double digits to her name. Her story is as unbelievable as it is inspiring, and I am just so grateful that she shares it today with such honesty, humor, and stoke. You are in for a real treat. This show is supported by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle Climbing Show. Y'all, I've been a paying customer of Fizzy Vantage for a year now, and this stuff is truly the best of the best if you want to level up your training and your performance, and I know you do. Today's guest, Favia Dubik, uses their supercharged collagen and weapons-grade whey protein every day, as do I. And does it work? Well, in the past year, I've been able to train harder, and I've stayed healthier than I have ever been able to in the past. Their products are developed from scratch by climbers for climbers, so if you're looking for that extra edge in your training and performance, then look no further. Hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order at fizzyvantage.com. I'm telling you, you're going to feel the difference. Swing by fizzyvantage.com to check it out. This episode's also sponsored by Athletic Greens. Y'all have heard of these guys. They have over 7,000 five-star reviews, and they're recommended by pro athletes. Guys, I've been taking AG1 for a while now, and I love it. I'm climbing in Vegas right now, and I brought my travel packs with me. It just gets the day started off right. I just shake it into some cold water first thing in the morning before I have my tea or my breakfast, and it tastes awesome. It supports gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, and focus, all the things. You guys, it's way cheaper than buying supplements, and it's just a simple thing that I can do every day to take care of myself. It's also really cool that they're a carbon-neutral company. Check it out. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com struggle. Again, that's athleticgreens.com struggle to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The struggle's carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with the Honnold Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. Swing on over to HonoldFoundation.org and just check out their impact report from last year. They are doing amazing work and every dollar goes a long way. Your support powers solar energy projects worldwide and that is awesome. <laughs> Lastly, y'all, after my chat with Favia, stick around for a couple minutes to hear my takeaways and learn how you can score some swag from the show. All right, get ready for a max effort sit start of a convo with Favia Dubik.
Fabio, it's just such a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. It's really just such a pleasure to have you here. I've been looking forward to this chat for a while now. Before we dive into the specifics, I'd like to hear what struggle means to you. So the big challenges that I've faced, it has changed my idea of struggle because I thought I knew what struggle was before I got cancer, before I was one of the only black female doctors in an entire hospital, but I was always born with this fight. I wasn't that healthy growing up. I was healthy from the ages of zero to six. Hmm. And then after that, I started getting infections, and I, but I was always an athlete. So just competing in track and field was always a struggle because I always had sinus infections or bronchitis, and I would hack up a lung after I ran my race. So like, I've always just had a bit of struggle as long as I can remember, but cancer and medicine are a whole other levels of struggle. Yeah, and if you don't mind, I'd love to hear what that time in your life was like. Uh, the diagnosis was devastating. It took several or many months for me to actually get uh, diagnosed because no one would believe me. They just kind of thought all med students think they have cancer. Mm. And I'm sure it didn't help that I was a Black female because we have data that shows that Black people, Black women, they don't get the same level of treatment and care as white people. So I had a double whammy against me. So no one was thinking that I actually had a life-threatening illness. But when it came along, I was happy to finally get the diagnosis because we knew that I had a mass in my chest, but we didn't know what it was. And I was going to be dead in a few weeks if we didn't figure out what it was so they could treat it. You would think, oh, I got cancer diagnosis. I'm sad. I was like, yes, score. (laughs) I can get treatment now. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's an interesting way to look at it, though. Yes, because at that point, you can fight. Mm. When you don't know what type of cancer you have, there's nothing anyone can do for you. And I, I like to fight, so I was excited once we had a title for it that I knew that I could move on to the next stage of my life. But we've seen TV. I I think that there was a movie that came out with that guy from Third Rock from the Sun. He's like Joseph. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, right. He got diagnosed with cancer and his girlfriend left him. And that came out maybe like a year or so before I got diagnosed. And so I had just, that was in my mind. And I feel like he was just living life. (laughs) But a little tired, a little vomiting. And I thought that's what I was going to do. Like I even told people at the hospital, at med school, oh, I'll be around. I'll just be sick a little bit, but I'll be there. Because that's what TB had taught me. What TB taught is wrong. Because that is not what it was like. I was bedridden for many months. My chemotherapy regimen was for six months. But I was already bedridden before I had, before we started chemo from all the surgeries I had. I was vomiting buckets, black goo exorcist style. I could barely walk on bathroom schedules at some point. Had to be fed. Then I would throw it up. (laughs) I I lost a lot of my memory. So I have amnesia. I've lost a couple years of my life. Wow. So a little bit before chemo, most of the time of treatment is gone. And then time after treatment is gone as well. So a lot of this is from other people have told me and like the vague memories that I have left. That's a result of the 
of chemotherapy. Chemo. Wow. Called Chemo Brain. It's funny, um, or maybe it's not funny. My mom, about 10, 12 years ago, had a pretty intense fight with breast cancer, and she was always talking about Chemo Brain, and I just thought she was making it up. No, now I got a doctor telling me that it's real. <laughs> no, it's real, um, but it's different for everyone. So some people, it's temporary, mm -hmm. uh, and some people, it's permanent. And it, the time that it lasts, for how much you lose, is all variable. So unfortunately, mine was permanent, and wow. I was in med school. So I lost a whole year of med school. I had to reteach myself that year of med school when I came back because I was like, I don't, like, I don't, y'all told me I was there, but. <laughs> oh my God, that's intense. So how long was this process? Like how long were you under treatment? After my diagnosis, I was on chemo for six months. Mm -hmm. And then I had uh, a couple of surgeries after that. And then I guess that's the finish sheet part of my treatment, but I had infection after infection. So I was having more surgeries to clean out the infections and I was in and out of the hospital and on antibiotics for several years afterwards. What was the prognosis for this? Were you expecting to beat it? My, I wasn't actually worried about dying at all <laughs> once I got the treatment. Although it was definitely I should have been because I nearly died several times. Oh my God. But not because of the cancer, but because of the surgeries. Mm. I had bad reactions to the surgery. So like my lungs collapsed. I had a tremendous amount of fluid around my lungs. I had clots all in my upper body, in my chest and neck. So I was so close to death, I guess, that I didn't even know what other people had to tell me. <laughs> right. This is an experience that most people, fortunately, don't have to endure, but you did, and you've got such a lightness and like a brightness about you. Your sense of humor is it's so beautiful. But when you look back on that time specifically for what you can remember, how, how do you view it? Mostly horrible. The only good part is that now once you've been that sick, once you felt chemo level of sickness, almost any other sickness is nothing. Hmm. So I could go to work feeling horrible, but it wasn't nearly as horrible as being chemo sick. So to me, it felt like a light cold when really I probably should have been like in the hospital. Wow. <laughs> like I could pee at a ninja warrior with a kidney infection. You should supposed to be in the hospital when you have a kidney infection. But I was on the stage that morning or the day before I had a flight at five and I was in the like, ED and I said, I need IV septriaxone and PO augmentin. For my, I was like, I got a flight at five. So you either get me that IV. Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> I don't get it on that plane to compete on Ninja Warrior. <laughs> that is madness. But, you know, like cancer to kidney infection. Cancer was way worse than kidney infection. Right. Wow. God, what you've gone through, Favia, is just, it, it it's blows my mind. It's incredibly impressive that you have now risen to the level of athletic dominance that you're in right now as a climber to come back from what you've done. It's just so incredibly inspiring. And I want to dive into more of this as we get going with the interview. But let me just ask this. Let's shift our gaze towards climbing and specifically how you see struggle through the lens of climbing. I guess I see a struggle as a challenge. I don't usually think, oh, I never actually even, the word struggle that come into my head. I never say I'm really struggling on this. Mm. I say, oh, I got this challenge. How do I overcome it? And I, I like that part of climbing because there's always some challenge. If it's too easy, then I guess I don't find it as fun. So I I love the struggle. 
Hell yeah, awesome. Let's dive in now. Let's take a look at struggle through the lens of training first. And, and where have you struggled with your training, Fabia? That's a very easy answer. I have struggled in dinos. I hate dino. I've been working on dinoing for almost three years now. Like really specifically, nearly almost every workout I do is focused on being able to dyno. And so three years into that training, I trained with Lattice and they make my workout plans for them. And I always tell them the focus is dinos, dinos, dinos. And recently, two and a half years into my dyno training, they had me canvassing with my feet on so that I could learn how to coordinate my hands and my feet at the same time. I camp is way worse with my feet on than my feet off. Interesting. <laughs> Why do you think that is? I, there's two things, or maybe even three. One is coordination. I'm just not coordinated. My hand-eye coordination is extremely poor. I've noticed it is so poor that like I have a touchscreen computer, and when I want to touch a button, I like touch the wrong one. Hmm. Or when someone gives me puts their hand out for a handshake, I can feel my heart to race because I'm so worried that I'm going to embarrass myself by missing their hand because wow. it's so hard for me to get my hand to their hand. <laughs> so my hand-eye coordination is awful. And I also herniated my disc three years ago, and it left me so weak that I could barely walk. I couldn't, like, pressing the gas pedal in the brake pedal was too hard for me, but I still went to climb. And so I was just canvassing everything pretty much. And my arms got really strong and I learned to really trust my arms, rely on my arms. And the fact that I, if I did try to rely on my feet, I would fall. Like I did. I, like people say, trust your feet. Then I fell off a of V1 and I like sprayed my ankle. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, <laughs> I can't. Can't trust your feet. I can't trust my feet. <laughs> and I'm healing from that. And every year my legs get stronger and stronger. I still can't 100% trust them, but I can trust them like 50, 60%. Yeah, that is really fascinating. So I guess you, you got to go with your strengths and train your weaknesses. So when you're working with your Lattice program and, and on your training, what are you focusing on? What does that look like? It has evolved because we've been doing this for three years. And I say I can't dino, but I have gotten a lot better now in my dinos, like when I started this process, a B0 dino, like I couldn't do. And now I'm working my way up to V8 dinos on the kilter board. So progress is, is being made. You went from not doing V0 to now doing V8. Yeah, I'd say progress is being made. And, and I think this is interesting because I think there's probably a lot of people out there who are uncomfortable with dinos, whether it's at the gym or on real rock. I don't love them myself. So tell me about what you're doing. Like, how, how did you go from V0 to V8? So the workouts have changed a lot. So when I started, I was terrified to even jump to, like, catch a hold. So you know how some boulders start when you just have to jump to the handhold? Sure. I couldn't do that. I was terrified. And so we actually, I did that for six months, like, just try to jump and catch a hole with, and do it. Because you would have videos of me and you would see me stand, look up pace my feet, look up, pace my feet, and then I would do it and I would probably scream. And then eventually I noticed that I would pace less, look up less, and I could walk up and just do it and then drop down and do it. So just baby steps or, or like exposure therapy. Yes. I had not get discouraged and I had done all the hard static problems in the Albuquerque area. 
and every other hard double-digit problem had a throw. And so I, about two years ago or so maybe, I made up a project or I found a project that had a D12 dyno in it. And then that's what's been motivating me through all of this is to be able to do a V12 dyno. You just have to be patient with yourself. And I'm working my way towards there. I'm getting there. Yeah. You're already at V8. I, I would say, yeah, you're getting there. That's amazing. We will stay tuned on that progress, which is coming fast and furious. What else in your training? Like what other types of training are you doing? I would say a lot of my workouts are focused on weaknesses because I probably have four dyno workouts a week um, of climbing. And then my other, a lot of my other workouts are kind of power endurance, which isn't a strength either. And then I only get to hangboard about once a week so I can maintain my finger strength, but it's not a main focus. And we have pretty much stopped altogether my weighted pull-ups because I can easily do my own body weight, like 110, 115 pounds extra obvious so 200 and some pounds i'm lifting like why do i need to lift 300 yeah so two times body weight is uh yeah and that's beyond the gold standard for i think for weighted pull-ups you could sneak more in probably because you like them but then tom randall might hunt you down and tell you you're, you're screwing up and that's a really good point i saw a video of weighted pull-ups today and i was like oh i missed them oh i want to do them and i i thought about email like coach like can we add them in i was like you don't need them i've seen videos of you doing one-arm pull-ups holding cats like footballs so you know, that was not in my plan i just i was like I just had to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's not in the crimped app is a uh, cat one arm cat pull ups. <laughs> but those weights are so much cuter than using regular weights. Yeah, totally. So. <laughs> you just want to try that much harder. Okay, Favi, let's talk about nutrition now. And uh, where have you struggled in your nutrition? It depends on who you ask. If you ask my husband, he would say, yes, I don't eat enough vegetables. If you ask me, I would say that I struggle with calorie intake because I don't like to eat. I never have because I, I have jaw issues as well, TMJ, and my jaws just hurt. Like chewing hurts. Right. Eating a steak hurts. So right now I actually drink a lot of my calories and that's just, it's a lot easier. So that's my biggest struggle is making sure that I have enough calories in to make sure I can perform at my best. And I found that it doesn't even matter quite what type of calories. So if I'm going to Waco and I'm like, I'm close to my project, I need a lot of energy. I'm probably going to just eat a giant steak or hamburger the night before. And it doesn't have to be the best quality, but it's just those calories. It, they powered me through. Right. So that's how I plan it is that before I need to do a big climb, I make sure that I get enough calories the night before. Yeah, that's interesting. That's kind of the other side of the coin here in, in climbing. There's sometimes an unhealthy and sometimes a healthy relationship and emphasis on weight because it's a strength to weight ratio sport. But here you are really needing to make sure that you're bringing in more calories. And so how do you do that? Are, are you keeping track? I don't keep track of anything. Sounds like your, I mean, maybe I your husband keeps track for you. <laughs> yeah, my husband definitely keeps track more than I do. I went to nutrition school too, but I still don't keep track of anything. <laughs> I, uh, I just go by how I feel. I learned that I, I, so I eat a very high protein diet, but cancer has made it easier. 
for me to know when I have enough because when I don't get enough, I get nauseous. So I'm like, oh, I'm nauseous. I need more protein. Right. And I'm not anemic, but I respond really well to red meat. So I make sure that I get red meat at least once a week because we, we eat a lot of chicken and fish. I probably eat fish every day, but I have to make sure that I get some red meat in. And so that's about all the tracking I do. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's dive into some tactics now, Favia. And you're interesting because you are um, a self-proclaimed low ball roof climber. And so I'd love to hear more about that and also any areas tactically where you struggle. Yeah, I am definitely a low ball roof climber. That is 99% of what I climb. I find it free and fun. I don't have to worry about anything. So that's why that's one of the reasons why I do it, but I have to worry about landing no matter the height if I land on my feet because of a connective tissue disorder that I have called Ehlers-Danlos. My ligaments and tendons can't keep my bones in the joint. So I dislocate very easily. It's gotten to the point now where I could dislocate on purpose. I was in Colorado bouldering and there was this reaching move and I, my arms couldn't reach it. So I purposely dislocated my shoulders to get an extra like half inch and I was able to do it. And then I had, you know, put them back in and I had to do some rehab afterwards. Because after you dislocate, you have to tighten everything back up. So I had to go back on my rehab, but. <laughs> we, we, we have to stop for a second. What in the actual heck? So just so I'm understanding. You intentionally dislocated your shoulders so that you could reach a move on a boulder and it worked? Yes. That is incredible. That is, that's like blowing my mind. I thought, for, first of all, isn't it incredibly painful to dislocate a, a joint? There's various levels of dislocating. So I don't like fully dislocate it, but I learned that I could do this. This is actually pre-cancer. Uh, I was climbing a route called humpy because you had to hump the top out it was a low ball roof but you had to hump it and during that hump i dislocated my shoulder and i just kept climbing and i continued to climb and then in the climb like my arm went back in the, in the socket i was like oh that feels much better <laughs> i think if you're not alarmed by the sudden pain you can you're sure you're not at your strongest but you can still climb and now that i've could control a little bit how much I dislocate when I choose to do it. I'm sure, yeah, my arms were weaker afterwards, but I have enough big muscle strength to compensate for whatever loss I, I lost in my shoulders. Wow. So yes, it's, it's painful. And I was in pain afterwards. So I was like, ugh. <laughs> but you sent. But I sent, I was like, was it worth it? I'm like, absolutely. Would I go back and do that again? Absolutely. <laughs> That's so badass. You just get more and more badass the more we talk. That's incredible beta. So look, don't try this at home, kids, unless um, you have experience with it. But but the downfall is that I can't take falls. So when I land on my feet, my hips can dislocate. And they generally do. It can be a six-inch fall and they can come out. Hmm. There's no fall too small that can't dislocate my hips. I've dislocated my leg bones. I was climbing recently on something I usually run laps on and suddenly I couldn't hold my weight on my leg anymore. And I was like, ah, what's happening? 
And I went to my chiropractor or the next day or two days later, and he's like, do you see something sticking out the wrong way? Oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's not normal. He's like, no. <laughs> that's why you couldn't put weight on your leg. <laughs> but, I mean, I didn't stop climbing. I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to do other moves. I don't weight it in that way. So I think is I have a very high pain tolerance, which can be good or bad. So it wasn't alarming that I couldn't suddenly weight my leg. Right. And I just kept climbing. But that is why I can't take falls is because I don't want to have other people have to carry me out. So I do low ball roofs where if I fall on my back, it's okay. It's just the feet. I can't land on feet. So you focus on these low ball roofs and you've done some incredibly challenging ones. What uniquely, for those who are interested in this style of climbing, what does it take? What does it take to be proficient at low ball roof climbing? What it takes, probably the Biggest thing is core. Having a strong core, even if your fingers are strong and your arms are strong, because they're low ball, if you cut feet, you can't keep your core up, you're going to dab. Mm. So you need a very strong core for that for low ball roof climbing. And then the, probably the second most important thing is just, of course, fingership helps, but it's the footwork. So toe hooks and heel hooks are key. Like, I love the idea of pulling limit moves just a couple feet off the ground. Like, I don't want to friggin' take a 10-footer or something. So I think it's really cool. And it's also super hard right off the mat. Like, I've seen some of these problems that you've worked on, and it's, there's just no screwing around. I was going to say, that's why I can't sport climb, because my attitude is, boom, 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 power, power, power. And people are like, why are you powering through that, like... <laughs> flowy area and I'm like what's flow <laughs> but actually I got a new device recently um, it measures your force oh. on the hangboard you can actually set it to what percentage of your weight that you want to do and so I've been playing around with learning like trying to go 60 percent so that I don't always have to go a hundred percent and get tired the 60% is enough to hold on, but me trying to gauge strength is hard. So this machine tells me when I'm going over that or going under that. And I'm like, oh, this is what, if I was a sport climber, this is the amount of effort I want to put in on easier moves instead of just always going 100%. Yeah, I like that. So are you working on a longer boulder problem, like a power endurance boulder problem right now? Right, right, TV. Oh, yeah, and Waco. So V12, a ton of moves, right? It's 35 moves or something. So you wow. climb in the cave and then you climb big iron to go to the top out. So it'll, it takes normal people a couple of minutes to climb it. I'm expecting it to take me probably like four or five minutes to climb it because I'm very slow. I'm a very slow climber. Um, so guess what? So... Now all of a sudden you're a sport climber. <laughs> you know, I made that joke to a sport climber. I was like, yo. I can climb for four minutes straight. And they're like, I can climb for an hour straight. <laughs> no, like, oh, okay. So I'm not a sport climb. I'm like, no. <laughs> All right, Fabio, let's shift gears here now and talk about mental game. Where have you struggled on the mental side of things? Outside of me physically, like struggling with a part of climbing, another mental uh, challenge I had was kind of learning that Black people aren't accepted all the time in the climbing world because my home gym was the Cleveland Rock Gym. And I felt so 
welcome there. I never felt that I was treated differently, like in the gym, because of my sex or my race. It was just a fantastic time. And I thought that all gyms were like that. And I kind of learned then that all cracks were not like that because I had noticed that I was treated differently than my white male counterparts when I was outdoors. But the gym was still a safe place. But recently, or not even recently, the past few years, I've learned that gyms aren't necessarily a safe place for people of color, male or female, but I can only talk to the female side of it. And that was extremely disheartening and scary and upsetting because I feel so unwelcome there. Wow, that is, excuse me, that is, that's hard to hear. Um, And I, God, I'm so sorry that that's your experience. It's you know, it's interesting because I, I, I would always consider the climbing community as being just like this really progressive and, and welcoming um, community for all, right? And I'm now, I guess, just starkly aware that that's my experience, right, as a white male and, and my own inherent bias and, and racism that's kind of mixed up into all of that is that presumption, I think. You know, when I go to the crag, it's all high fives and, hey, let's, you know, let's have a good time. We're all welcome. But that's not your experience. And and I am assuming that there are many people of color who are climbers who uh, don't have the same experience that I do. In fact, they have probably an experience like you do. So I'd like to learn more about that. What What is it like for you when you're out at the crag? Um, well, let's just go back to what you said earlier for a second, where you said your experience was like, you know, high fives and welcoming. And... I think that was just like kind of brilliant because when I mentioned these, like my experience, so the people are like, oh, like that's racism or like this gym is racist. The first thought is, no, it's not because what they experience is as white men is what you experience. It's like a welcoming place. And so it's so hard for them to understand that like it, people, this it's one gym, but it's very different gyms actually. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Depending on what you look like, female, male, black, white, Asian, like it's different. But for me going out, I think for a lot of females, and, and I've talked to very like World Cup female climbers about this same issue, is that almost no matter how strong you are as a female, if you go with a man and someone wants beta, they will walk up to the man and ask him Hmm. for the beta. Like I have been working on like my project with a friend who can't, who's not strong to be on that. And the people will see me on that climb, climbing it. They won't see my friend on that climb and they'll go up to him and be like, hey, so how do you do that move? (laughs) And I'm like, I just did it. Uh. (laughs) Or recently I went out with two friends and this guy asked us where the best climbing was at the crag but these friends had never been there they were new climbers this was like their second bouldering trip ever I was their guide for the day but the man he walked up turned his back to me and asked them a question and then they answered it and I was like hey I'm here I existed this is actually where the crag is this is the best part of it um and so it's a lot of small things like that like you kind of ignore, like they'll walk up to the group, but they'll turn their back to you as if you're not in that group 
or as if like you can't possibly know the answer to their question because you are a female and then add black female on top of that. I definitely can't help them, which is unfortunate because like often I've been climbing outside now for a long time. So I do have experience to, to share with them, particularly over the people who I'm guiding. <laughs> but sometimes it gets more dangerous or it's not so benign, I guess, whereas not just turning their back is aggressive where people have like physically gotten into my face and yelled to the point where I had to carry mace uh, or get my mace out because I just would not stop. No matter how I said, please you know, stop yelling at me, please back up, please stop talking to me. They would just keep advancing. And so sometimes it gets more, I get more word for my safety other than just being annoyed. Man, that is just really disheartening to, to hear. Fabi, I'm sorry that that has been your experience. It's totally fucked up. Um, what can be done, do you think? I mean, I'm not asking you for the answers. You certainly don't have to provide the answers, but you're a hell of a lot smarter than I am. And probably most everybody out there, considering your life experience as well as your education. Um, what do you think the, the rock climbing community can do? So in situations where you have a chance to like amplify our voice. I know that's been thrown around a lot, but when I took my friends out on that, you know, I was guiding them for the day and the man asked them a question that they were not equipped to handle, yet they answered it wrong. <laughs> that would have been a fantastic opportunity to say like, hey, we're new to climbing, but our guide here, Fabia, she can answer your question. Right. Like small things like that would would go a long way. Yeah. Well, th thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I think it's just clear that, that we all have a long way to go still as welcoming as the climbing community, I think prides itself on being, um, it's not welcoming for all clearly based on, on what you're sharing and welcoming is even maybe the place that we should start. I mean, how about being actively anti-racist? I don't know. I, I don't, I certainly don't have the answers. You know, I've got as much work to do as, as everyone else. But I think this conversation is what needs to happen. I, I hope it helps. I want the gym to be in the cracks, like for everyone. And that would, if everyone felt welcomed, then it would go a long way for our sport because we'd get a lot more people into it. Because I know our sport, it can be intimidating for many reasons, not just because of your sex or race. So I, I want it to be a more welcoming inclusive place. I love climbing and climbing changed my life. And I want that for other people too. Well, thank you, Fabia, for, for having this conversation and let's make sure we continue to have the conversation. Um, but before we leave the, the mental game chapter here, I do want to um, bring things now back to, to your personal struggles with climbing and um, on the kind of physical side of things, I'd like to hear about your recovery from just this full degradation of your body during your fight with cancer. And while most people probably won't experience something uh, on that level, um, hopefully, I think we all do experience setbacks, injuries of, of some kind. And I really would love to understand how you kept your stoke up when you were looking at, you know, maybe not ever being able to climb again. There are many things that got me there. I mean, one is just who I was, who I am, like how I was born. Because when you choose to go to med school, generally it's not a 
oh, I'm in college. I want to go to Mexico next year. I mean, there are people who, who do that, but the majority is like, oh, when I was five, like myself, like I decided I was going to be a doctor and then I did science fair projects and then I did research in high school and you set a goal that you're not going to achieve until you're 30 when you're like in elementary school. And so I think that kind of natural aspect of my personality definitely helped me keep the, the long-term goal. But during the darkest part of my time, I absolutely lost sight of it. It was gone. I had no will to live. I asked my husband, he was then my boyfriend, to just kill me because there was nothing worth in life living for. All that pain I was going through, there's nothing worth it. I was just like, just end it. It's fine. I enjoyed the past like 23 years of my life. (laughs) That's good enough. And he was like, no. It's temporary. You're going to get through this and you're going to go on. And I was like, okay, but why am I going to go on? For what reason? And I picked climbing. And I said, if I survive this, when I survive this, I am going to just work hard to be the best climber I can possibly be. And I just haven't, I haven't forgotten that. Cancer is still like, I have daily reminders that I had cancer. And I have daily reminders of why I decided to keep going in life. And that was to climb. And I know people will say that climbing is silly or pointless, but I don't see it that way. I, I see it as my motivating factor for not giving up when I was on death's doorstep. Hell yeah. And I'm thankful for that. <laughs> Hell yeah. I love that about climbing and I love that about you. I mean, when you're, when you're at death's doorstep like that and your will to live is to climb, and now here you are climbing and crushing. What is that like? Well, when I'm climbing, I'm definitely not thinking about much other than the next move or that I'm so terrified or my skin hurts. But afterwards, it's, it's pure joy. It's, it's fun. And one part of it is that I've had a lot of struggle. And when, I've over, when I overcome it, it just feels great. It, it, feel, it makes you feel unstoppable. And that's, I think, kind of what cancer, I was already a little like this beforehand. I felt a little unstoppable, but like overcoming cancer and then seeing that training, if you follow through your discipline, can help you achieve your dreams, then nothing feels impossible anymore. You feel like you can achieve anything as long as you make a plan and stick to it. Mm, I love it. (laughs) That's how I feel. I just feel that I can do anything. Even though I can't. Yes, you can. You can and you are. You're proving yourself wrong. I don't I don't think of it that way. I just think of it like I can't do this yet. How do I do it in the future? Because I can do anything I put my mind to. All right, Favi, let's shift gears here now to what you're passionate about beyond rock climbing. And there's a couple places that I'd like to touch on. One is your love of animals, of course. We got to talk about that. But also I want to talk about your work as a doctor, as a pathologist, and this clinic that you've opened up to help patients understand their diagnoses, right? Yeah, so my degree is like an MD, but for residency, I did it in anatomic and clinical pathology, and then I did a fellowship in hematopathology. Okay, so maybe dumb it way down because we're climbers. What did that focus and what did that work entail? One of my favorite things in life is telling people that. And then 
trying to guess their response because I know they don't know what it is. And some people are just like, I don't know what it is. But other people are like, oh, okay. Yeah, I know that. Right. <laughs> right. So yeah, just to be clear, even when you dumb it down, I'll probably ask you to do another level of dumbing down after that. <laughs> um, pathologist. So my main residency was just in pathology pretty much. The biggest part of our job is when you get a piece of tissue taken from you, we look at it under the microscope to make the diagnosis. So we're kind of the behind the scenes doctors or we're considered the doctor's doctor. Uh, a lot of patients don't have contact with us, but their doctors are always calling up like, hey, <laughs> how do I tell the patients? Like, what does your report say? Like, can you explain this to me? So we actually explain our reports to the doctors and then they explain it to the patient. Right, right. So, and as you were telling me earlier, this this kind of came about because when you were diagnosed with cancer while in med school, it, it really sent you on this new course. Um, and and it sounds like while it's incredibly rewarding work, you you miss this contact with patients, right? This this ability to connect with patients. And is that why you started your clinic? Tell us a little bit about that. So, I created Dr. Favia's Diagnosis Education Clinic which is the first of its kind in the country. And it helps people understand their PATH reports. So if, for me, it took multiple biopsies to make my diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And we've shown that when people understand their disease, they're more likely to follow through on their treatments. And so it's just a service that's not there. So I created it. Yeah, that's really incredible. So for people like yourself who are getting these path reports and maybe confused by the results, and of course, it's just an incredibly vulnerable and I'm sure scary time for most people, you're able to, in plain language, explain what these results are and um, hopefully give them some some more confidence in how they take action. So are, are most of the people that you work with cancer Patients, is that typically the path reports you're looking at? All kinds of path reports. And as a physician, I understand what things can be abnormal. And I, I'll tell you, I'll say like, hey, Ryan, you're healthy, completely fine. And then you'll look at your report and I'll be like, this says it's, it's out of range. But I'll know it's not significant, but like we don't put that on the lab report. Right. And so I get a lot of like, why is this number high? What do I need to do? Or what does this mean? So and cool. usually lay fears. Like most of the time, I've hardly ever told someone, oh yeah, you got to be worried about that. It's usually like, no, no worry. No worry. Your doctor isn't bad. Your doctor didn't forget this. They just said you were fine. And they didn't go over the details because they only have 15 minutes right. and they had left to go over. So I'm not really here to take the job of other doctors. I'm here to just help them out. Yeah, I love it. I, I, it's just such a great service. I mean, I think for anybody who's facing, whether it's just a, a, a lab report that has some weird stuff on it or, you know, a potentially scary diagnosis, this kind of additional information and guidance and the power that comes from that just seems so valuable. So can anyone do this? Like, like how do we consult with you? I have a website, drfabia.com, and you can just make an appointment on there. Yeah, that's just so cool. I love that. So anyone, regardless of where we live, we can, we can take our reports and just make an appointment with you to understand them better. I love that service. Congratulations. Okay, now let me just shift gears to the other side of things now and talk about your pets and your animals because I know that's something that you are also incredibly passionate about. Many of them have joined this interview as I've seen in the background. Tell me about your fur babies. 
I loved animals for as long as I can remember. When I was a little girl, instead of having a baby in a stroller, I had a little white cat in there and I used to push it around. I just, I love my fur babies. When people ask me if I have children now, I stop saying no. I was like, yeah, I have six. So they just happen to be cats and dogs <laughs> because they are, they're a part of me. And our whole life at home revolves around taking care of them. Where do you get them? Where did you find these fur babies of yours? We rescue our dogs from Petables, which is a rescue group here where they get scary dogs, bulldogs, like bull breeds. And they're just the sweetest things. And we try to rescue animals that have special needs. So like one cat, he has three legs. One cat was born with no eyes and ovaries and a wiener. So he has like both parts. Another cat. Is that, the, is that the medical term for it? Ovaries and a wiener? That's because you're a doctor. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's it's so much better than TV. I feel like we've covered more territory in this interview than a, a typical podcast would cover from hermaphroditic cats to racism at the gym, to dislocating your joints in order to send your project. We've just covered all the bases, Fabia. I am so grateful that you've taken the time, that you were honest and accessible and and just so real for, for us with this chat. Thank you for, for sharing your life and your stories with us. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. But as a doctor to tell people, I cannot recommend you dislocate your shoulders, although it works. <laughs> Man, I love this conversation. What a friggin' roller coaster of emotions. Huge thanks to Favia for being so real and for bringing that infectious laugh of hers. What did you all think of the interview? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Feline Favia, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. You know, I got a lot of great climbing and training beta out of this chat, but my biggest takeaways are definitely internal. Favia shows us that the human spirit is far stronger than the body that holds it. Life is just gonna throw us challenges of all shapes and sizes, and Favia shows us that resilience, determination, and humor are all secret superpowers, which can be developed and worked on just as we do for finger strength. It's also clear that the climbing community has some real work to do on being anti-racist and a safe and welcoming place for all climbers. And if that realization makes you uncomfortable, I hear you. It makes me uncomfortable too. And I honestly, I think that's a good thing. Let's use that discomfort as motivation to question our assumptions and to take action. Please reach out to me if you're working on this or if you have some ideas that you want to share. Uh, maybe I missed something here. Just feel free to reach out. Unless you're going to bring some hate and then just don't reach out because ain't nobody got time for trolls and all that crap. Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Created by climbers for climbers, they make the best climbing specific nutrition in the world and they are huge supporters of the climbing community. I love this stuff. Use code STRUGGLE15 to get 15% off your full price nutrition order at fizzyvantage.com. All right, that clips the anchors on this episode. But before I go, how about some swag? If you'd like to support the show and the climbers who make it, and I hope you do, pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and sign up for the only tier that we have, Send Train. You'll be supporting the show, you'll get access to all sorts of cool stuff, and you'll be able to score yourself a limited edition travel mug slash can koozie, which is only available to guests of the show and the patrons who support it. 
Keep your coffee hot on the way to the crag and your can of suds cold after the send. It's rad. Check it out. And if you can't support as a patron, it's all good. I'd love to hook you up with a free sticker. Simply rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm working really hard on this and would love to hear from you. Take a little screen grab of that review, post it on Instagram, and tag at the Struggle Climbing Show so we can find you, and we'll send some stickers your way. Slap them on your Nalgene, your stick clip, your van, your forehead, or wherever you put stickers so that everyone knows that you love the struggle and the struggle loves you. All right, let's climb hard and do good things in the world. <laughs>